At Southern Wind, Tuesdays from 8 to 10 p.m. on listener-supported WERU-FM Blue Hill. So don't turn to the blues unless it's on community radio. It'll make you feel so good. Yes, it's so damn good. I've glad when I got the blues. This hour of Boat Talk is made possible in part by Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sales for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for over 20 years. Near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.com. And the time is 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 102.9 in Bangor. Stay tuned for Boat Talk. Set me up on my pony on my Good morning. It's uh, second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio WRU FM Blue Hill. Boat Talk is a call in radio show with two old sailors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. Two old sailors who know how to put the crude into crude yacht charters. Here for one hour of call in show of. Uh, Marine interest items. You know what I like to say a lot of the times? I like to say, crude but effective, just like me. (laughs) You know, when I do something like hit it with a bigger hammer type trick, you know, to make something work. Yeah. Crude but effective. That's a good pun, too. I'll have to remember that one. Well. You are the punny one. um, Let's start off here on on the more or less local front. What's uh, things going on? Yeah, Boat Talk, uh, Alan didn't finish explaining, is uh, marine-oriented, you know, uh, consider... Your naval issues kind of call-in, interactive kind of show, and and uh, we will interrupt anything, basically, for a phone call. And the number here is 1-866-625-9378 or uh, 1-866-625-WERU. And, again, we, uh, you know, contemplate anything naval from uh, uh, any kind of boat issues or uh, even fantasies you might have. Or we like to talk about books sometimes and... Uh, People, and there's all kinds of things, uh, boat talk usually, uh, fairly good discussion. Yeah, yeah, it's a very wide subject that'll uh, whet your appetite in some way or another. Got a couple of news items this morning. Um, there has, of course, been a big uh, to-do about LNG plants up and down the coast of Maine, and uh, what is it, three or four times now. Uh, it's been voted on in different communities from Harpswell down to Pleasant Point, down to uh, the Eastport area, on whether a community wants to welcome a uh, LNG, liquefied natural natural gas plant, into its community. Uh, The whole idea is there's a pipeline that runs between Sable Island and, uh, you know, the real United States down to the Boston area, and it comes right through here. Now, the Sable Island reserves are not playing out the way they thought, neither is the uh, fields off of Newfoundland and stuff, and that... Pipeline, I believe, is underutilized, and they want to put gas in it, and they are desperate to find a place to plug ships into it. Now, uh, the most recent uh, referendum down in Eastport, uh, down Pleasant Point, got voted down uh, by the uh, Passamaquoddy Indians, and now the company has come back, and just recently they had an executive session where the company uh, from Oklahoma came to the executive council of the Passamaquoddy tribe and says, look, that was a good try. It didn't quite work. But if, uh, you know, you don't uh, sign on to this right now, we're going to put this in Robinston right down the ta- right down the road. And, of course, uh, you know, that's kind of extortion in a way now, isn't it? Black man. Not to mention the bribery they tried before that of saying, uh, hey, we'll pay all the town taxes if you just let us in. Uh, a couple weeks before the election, apparently that didn't work either. But anyway, here's the point. There's a couple of plants that are going to be built, apparently, in uh, Canada, one in New Brunswick, which is called the MISPEC liquefied natural gas terminal, that's near St. John. It's going to be another one down by Canso on the Strait of Canso in between Nova Scotia and Cape Breton Island. They are uh, not 
facing the kind of opposition that they do here, but uh, they have come a cropper in St. John over local tax issues, and people are complaining that the uh, board that, uh, uh, you know, uh, figures out such stuff is completely stacked with industry people from Irving Oil uh, and others, and uh, that they just gave the LNG uh, a completely sweetheart deal in the town of St. John, New Brunswick, which has horrible uh, domestic tax problems is mm-hmm. way in the red and, and uh, you know, could really use that money. So so anyway, that's uh, up into the fan. A couple fellas just died fishing this weekend. There's a boat story. Yeah, yeah. Two guys that were out, I believe, in a canoe on uh, this weekend, and the wind, I guess, upset their canoe. On Saturday, they went out uh, down east, uh, down Cooper Way, and, uh, yeah, in a canoe when it was blowing so hard. And, you know, they were intent on their spring fishing trip. Now, they had life jackets. They weren't wearing them. They had floating cushions. And all these things were found later, and they're still looking for one of the two fellas. Both of them died. Yeah. I believe it's the law now that when you're a canoe, you have to be wearing. It used to be you could just have a life vest in the canoe, but I think you have to wear them. I now. think I heard a warden say the other day that for an adult, it has to be accessible, which mm-hmm. made me wonder because when I kayak, I, I stuff it behind the seat. Now, I could not reach that thing. From where I'm sitting, uh, very easily at all, the you know I have to really stuff it in there, hmm. and I've often thought I'd have tipped this thing over for fun and just see if I could get that <laughs> see out. See if you drown or not. And yeah, well, <laughs> I swear, you know I'm kind of a fish, but still, um, and I, I you know would rather not tip the thing over. So mm-hmm. not this time of the year, especially. No, and I tell you what, I've also been thinking really hard about boat rides lately. I just aching to. Put the kayak in the water and stuff. Wouldn't today be a good one? Yeah, I was up country up uh, West Cary Pond this weekend. The ice just went out of that a couple of days ago. And, you know, it uh, would have been a cold little recreation, uh, even if you're sitting on a foam pad and, uh, yeah. you know, got gloves on that your hands don't get wet. You're still going to get very the wet and cold, and cold. And you've got to allow for it nowadays. Hmm. So, anyway. Hey, here's another uh, pretty interesting, uh, uh, kind of sad Let's give the number again. Newspaper article. I was just thinking that, too. You go Somebody right ahead. Somebody else wants to throw in some news. 866-625-9378 is the number into this. So just into uh, Boat Talk, 866-625-WERU. Contemplate your naval-oriented uh, issues, you know. From the Bangor Daily News, uh, Gouldsboro Sardine Cannery, the last of its kind, and... Uh, Bumblebee Tuna, which now owns uh, the Stinson Cannery down in uh, uh, Prospect Harbor, has just closed the plant in Bath, and that leaves the only sardine cannery factory in the United States of America in Prospect Harbor, Maine, right down the road here. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is down from a lot of sardine cannery factories. For instance, the first uh, sardines were canned in uh, 1875 in Eastport, Maine. You go down to Eastport, and there's some uh, buildings down there that reflect some wealth. That's sardine money, okay? They're neat buildings. Yeah, and, uh, you know, they're mostly empty now. But from 1875 on, uh, you know, started, there were 33 uh, canneries in Maine from Eastport to South Portland. They employed as much as 6,000 workers, and uh, they uh, produced as many as 344 million cans, four cans for every American at the time. Wow. You know, and uh, there was a great story from a fellow who was uh, touring down there at the end of the 1800s, and he went in and toured one of the uh, sardine canneries in Eastport, and he says he always liked sardines till he went there, but <laughs> it was the perfect discouragement because of the uh, absolute mm-hmm. uh, incredible filth of the urchins, uh, male and female, who were canning the things, not to mention the plant and the indescribable odor, uh, you know, yeah. there around. Heard that from the workers, too. Um we do have a call. <laughs> we try to sweeten things up here a little bit from the sardines. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi. Um, I wanted to uh, address the subject of a problem that we're having. I'm not going to say uh, exactly where I am on the shore, but let's just say it's a bay between Goolsboro and Booth Bay. Okay. And because uh, The reason I don't want to say is because there have been threats uh, and there are personal issues involved. There are fishermen or lobstermen who are leaving pickle or, you know, dead fish heads and tails and stuff, big piles of them on the shore to be washed out into the bay. And uh, this is uh, polluting periodically. It's unpredictable. You don't know when it's going to happen. It pollutes 
the shore, uh, the water on the shore, and it's uh, bad for swimming. It stinks. <laughs> it's a mess. And uh, it's almost impossible to control this. I have uh, uh, called the Marine Authority about it, but they don't really have much they can do about it unless they actually see it happening. So they're dumping bad bait? Is that the idea? Uh, it, yeah, exactly. Right, right on the shore at uh, mid, mid-tide line. Uh, to be washed out. And I would assume there's a regular spot this happens. Uh, there, there is a particular spot I'm, I'm thinking of, yes. I'm sure it's not, not just here, but, uh, but uh, right near where I am, yes. Well, the whole bait thing's pretty interesting. Uh, the lobster fishery, in a way, hinges on bait, you know. And uh, we were just talking about sardine canneries, and uh, the bait has always been, the favorite bait's always been herring. Mm-hmm. But there's uh, not herring like there used to be now. So they get all kinds of different kinds of bait. Right up to nowadays, uh, uh, some people are using treated cowhide, which is a big controversy over whether or not that's uh, outside of the food chain and going to be messing things up. So the bait situation, uh, here's what I'm getting at. The, the bait situation on the coast of Maine right now, in a way, is kind of critical to start off with. Um, and there's only so many dealers, and they have you know their regular uh, spots and haunts. So I wouldn't think if something like this was happening, it'd be much of a mystery who, because uh, there ain't that many of them. And like I said, well, let's say we 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 do know who is doing it, but uh, it's a problem. Let's say there have been actual threats uh, made. I'm not going to go into detail, but. one might worry that their house might get burned down or something like that. Um, in any case, uh, I, I see it as a problem that this that this uh, pollution is going is interfering with our shore. There's a uh, good example right there of the proprietariness, uh, if that's the right word, of the uh, you know a lot of different fisheries. Uh, um, you know, you're messing with with uh, somebody's little you know, how they make their living when you're uh, threatened, whatever the heck is going on there. And uh, so, again, I'm, I'm uh, thinking that the DMR, the Department of Me- uh, Marine Resources, would be the, the people to call. And uh, my, my other question would be, what's the right way to throw away, uh, you know, bait that's gone by? And mind you, uh, you've got to go way by to be bad bait. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, maybe you can tell me this. Uh, is, I, I've been told that, that by... Um, the Marine Authority that that it is illegal to do this, that it that it uh, that it is it, it is supposed to at least be uh, put out uh, a, a mile or so out to dump it overboard. I mean, it is right. bi- it is biodegradable after all. I mean, it's going to get going to get uh, sent right back into the ecosystem. But like you say, not on the beach where people are, and you know, in concentrated form, a big pile of, of uh, bad bait is a uh, yeah, as powerful doesn't quite describe. Right, and and, and as the, as the the, uh, the waves come up and the tide comes up, it it, it spreads a lot of the uh, the slime and the uh, and the fish heads and tails along the beach and in the water. And I have actually been out swimming and found like, what in the world is going on? Here I am in the middle of a bunch of of fish heads and slime. Yeah, seems uh, to me. So, Sounds to me like you need to document what's going on, and and uh, you know there's got to be a, a right way to do this. And what I would try would be uh, you probably know some some fishermen in the area that are that you're uh, on fairly good terms with, mm-hmm. and uh, just present the problem to them because the fishermen talk with each other, and I think there are probably a lot of them, or the vast majority of them, who uh, want to abide the law, and uh, if they. Um, I'd say just sort of a little bit of peer pressure among the group would probably influence this person that's dumping the stuff to uh, to re- I believe you're supposed to take it to the dump and the, the uh, most dumps now have a composting section where the, the crab shells and all that sort of stuff gets put and it's turned into compost. Dead bait can be a smell that puts some people <laughs> off. Other people, you know, will take a big whiff and go, ah. Yeah. But there's, you know, there's a point where there's nobody going to say, yeah, that smells good. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it shouldn't have to be countenanced. Um, Alan has a good point. Um, you know, maybe talk with, uh, uh, find uh, local fishermen, talk with them, see what they think. Because in a way, we made this point when we uh, have talked about lobster in here on Boat Talk, 
there's kind of two laws in the lobster world. There's the uh, Department of Marine Resources State of Maine law book, and then there's the community laws. And, uh, you know, if lobstermen don't like the way things are going, they'll make it happen different. Mm-hmm. That peer pressure is, in a way, uh, you know, uh, stronger than anything the, uh, the court system can, can threaten them with. But they are very proprietary about the, uh, like I say, if you're uh, messing up what is, uh, you know, how, how somebody's making their living, if you're... Yeah, I got that. Yeah. All right. Um, boats will be cut adrift, uh, you know, traps will be tied, traps will be cut off, boats will be cut adrift, uh, you know, people get beat up, pets get, get uh, you know, killed, and, uh, you exactly. know, a lot of, there's, there's been some legendary stories up and down the coast, there's no dispute mm-hmm. in any of that. Um, you want to stay clear of that for damn sure. Exactly. Yeah. But like I say, document and uh, you know approach the approach the people in the community, approach the people in the DMR, and uh, you know, I would say, gently try to scope it out. Mm-hmm. Not not uh, you know, uh, and and uh, you know, here's some advice that's not boat advice. Uh, you know, when you're having a disagreement with anybody, you always got to leave them somewhere to go. You know, and very rarely do people argue that way. Well, I hope that uh, in my calling, at least uh, two may may get the the fact out that people are noticing this, and uh, perhaps if, other people will talk about it too. If it's a problem, like you say, I would assume somebody had to have noticed it. You mm-hmm. know, that's uh, uh, not unnoticeable. Like I say, that that uh, bad bait. But again, bait is a precious resource nowadays. There are often bait shortages. Um, you know, especially of herring, of, of uh, um, certainly the, some people like to fish uh, different different kinds of bait, you know, and some people uh, don't like the stuff that uh, may only be available at some time. As I say, bait is a uh, quite a business at the present time, and there's a bit of a problem, um, you know, in the bait world. And as we said the other day uh, uh, on Boat Talk about uh, the lobster trap video camera system that they put to see what happens when a lobster trap hits the bottom. Basically, lobsters attack it, attack the bait as soon as the lobster trap goes down, and they fight over the bait. And uh, what happens is that they enter and exit the trap at will. Ninety-six percent of lobsters can leave the trap anytime they want, apparently, and uh, they go in and they eat the bait. And you have to think of that lobster trap as a hay bale being thrown into a pasture. It's a feeding station, and they are, in a way, uh, the bait industry is is supporting. The lobster uh, ecosystem, you know, they are, they're ranching those things. They're feeding them. And uh, as I said, the, the whole bait thing is pretty interesting, the whole ins and outs of the whole thing is all, all I'm uh, trying to point out here. But, yeah, you got a problem, and, and uh, you know, it shouldn't be. No, yeah, I think what I would try first is just talk it up among some of the other fishermen, some, some of the moderates, we'll call them. And uh, I'd be interested to find out just what happened. So why, why don't you call us again? back next month and let us know how the situation is going. We may be able to contact some people here, too, for you. Hope the uh, the situation ab- abates. Oh, uh, he is the punny one. <laughs> Thank you very much for your help. Yeah, Thank you, and best of luck. 866-625-9378. If you have any anything that uh, smells like bait, we'll be uh, willing to talk about it. It's 866-625-WERU. That's, uh, as I say, kind of interesting, and, and um, everybody's living a sort of different trip on the coast. You know, it gets multiple uses. Um, for instance, I was up to, uh, I was up country uh, this weekend, a place called West Cary Pond, just uh, sort of in between the Kennebec River and Sugarloaf, okay? And um, there is one side of the pond that's been sold off, and people have camps there. Now, that's everybody's happy place. But everybody experiences it and likes to have a happy time in a slightly different way. And the way that some people like to experience their happy place really upsets some other people. Mm-hmm. Okay, I like to mow my lawn. Well, this other fellow might have come up here thinking he wanted to get away from lawnmowers, <laughs> and this is no place for a lawn. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no electricity here, but I run my generator all day and night. And uh, you know, kids like the neighborhood kids like to come over and see movies. Yeah, well, we're not up here to watch TV. One man's floor is another man's and, uh, ceiling. And the coast is exactly the same thing. Everybody's approaching it a different way. That bait guy and the guy walking and swimming have yeah. totally different. Uh, you know. Yeah, one's using it like a toilet, and the other one's using it like a bathtub. Good huh? point. Um, we do have another call. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Yeah, good morning. 
Hey, I just wanted to tell you, I, I was sympathized with that guy who called about the bait being dropped on the beaches. It is they do nasty. it a lot. Yeah, they do it a lot, especially around Lopez Point and Bass Harbor. And let me tell you something. All those times it happens, and I bring my dog down to the beach, the first thing he does is rolls around in the nasty oh, bait. That's a good dog. I'm <laughs> proud of him. Exactly. Wouldn't be, yeah. a, wouldn't be a good dog if he wouldn't roll in dead bait. Come on. And I'm also listening. I've discussed this with people about those poverty boxes that the guys drop in the water for the uh, lobsters to crawl in and munch out. And I just wanted to comment on it and say, yeah, that's the first time I've ever heard a media source talk about the dependence of the small lobsters on the uh, bait for feed and sustenance. Mm -hmm. So, cool. Yeah, uh, really think so. As I say, you can uh, weigh how much bait is going into the water every year, and it all disappears. And basically, it's not that, uh, uh, for instance, some fishermen like to fish different kinds of bait. Uh, imagine we're in a little area, and everybody's fishing bait A, and I come along with bait B, my theory being that the lobsters are going to be tired of bait A, and they're going to want to go to the different restaurant, so they're all going to come and, and find my trap, okay? But apparently, as I said, they'll attack about anything and fight over it. And, uh, you know, it's arguable whether or not that's a, a technique that fools them. And, and, again, the theory is that they enter and exit at will, and after they're uh, done with the bait, well, you pull the trap up. Um, in one example, 3,058 lobsters tried to approach the trap, most of which were fought off by other lobsters, uh, 50-something or so entered and exited. They pulled the trap. They had a couple of shorts and two keepers. And that happened to be who was in the trap at the time. You know? So is this an individual protection? Or are these lobs, lobbies uh, ganging up? They got some guys watching the front of the trap, some guys in there pigging out, and then they take <laughs> turns or what? They're all about, they're all about uh, uh, dominance and stuff. They, they do everything by smell. They mark their territories uh, constantly by peeing out of their noses, uh, the rostum, I believe it's called. And uh, Dude, I wish I could do that. <laughs> yeah, while they're, uh, <laughs> think how it had, uh, you know, having an argument, for instance. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang up, but I want you guys to tell me about that, uh, that rawhide bait that people are using, because there's debates that that could be a, uh, one of the yes. reasons why that shell disease is coming up. So yeah. I'm going to hang up and listen to you guys. Thanks for boat talk. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> and one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. You know, there's a there's a great joke uh, lurking there, but um, the federal uh, obscenity laws say specifically say that you cannot make excretory or sexual references. So we're going to leave that one right yeah. alone. When we get past the science, you know, science yeah. is cool to talk we'll about. We'll turn but. up our noses at that one. Yeah. So anyway, uh, cowhide bait is the thing that's come along. I don't know a lot about it, but I know that uh, some people think it's just a miracle, and uh, it's affordable. It's always available, and it lasts a really long it time. It lasts weeks and weeks. I tried it for a while, actually, when I was having a non-commercial license. I didn't care for it, but it does last forever. Again, if they're going to attack the trap, and, and you're really only catching the one that's there at the time, um, I'm not sure... How critical, uh, you know, the exact special bait is. Uh, it may be that that mostly any bait will, uh, you know, get them going. Um, again, it, it might depend on what their other food sources are, and uh, you know, it's interesting. The whole ecology of the uh, bottom has, of course, changed over over time. Uh, in the old days, the lobsters used to be just uh, ganged up in the shallows, and big ones started at four feet. Mm -hmm. And they used to go in and just gaff them. You could reach over oh, from yeah. a rowboat and gaff them. The first settlers here I used to have them wash up on the shore after storms and just yeah. pick them up. Now, on the other hand, at the same time, the cod was so thick that you could just about gaff those too. And uh, I believe the baby lobsters uh, get eaten by the baby cod. So, uh, you know, they're not there anymore to predate on them, mm. uh, which is kind of interesting. And, and back to the cowhide, some people think that it's an unnatural part of the food chain and, uh, you know, will affect the lobsters badly. There is a shell disease issue that's uh, south of here and coming north. People um, have suggested that that might have been a perfect storm of pesticides, um, 
uh, West Nile uh, uh, pesticide applications down the Long Island area, a rise in temperature, and I forget what, uh, there was a big storm that came by too and stirred everything up. Mm -hmm. I believe that some people think that that may just be a uh, confluence of uh, events, but you know, throwing cowhide in might not help too. So. Yeah, I, I believe another issue with the cowhide too is that the hair in the cowhide is not digested by the lobsters. So when people uh, Good point. open the lobster up, you've got all this. <laughs> yeah. One more thing about the, body the parts thing here now. One more thing about the lobster fishery. They had a meeting uh, just recently and uh on the front page of the uh, local Fisherman's Voice newspaper and the uh, big controversy nowadays is the idea that fishermen may have to give up their floating rope um in effort of uh helping not snag right whales, of which is only a couple left and uh, a couple died this last year. Mm -hmm. Floating rope is critical to fishing in very rocky places so that the uh, tide doesn't uh, take your rope uh, while it's laying on the bottom and wind it around a bunch of rocks and uh, that rope ain't gonna come back on your boat so floating rope's very important and it's also if you imagine the amount of rope out there for what uh, three million lobster traps um, that's a lot of rope and somebody's gonna have to throw it away and then buy more so uh, yeah big controversy going on right now about saving the whales Yes, good morning. Uh, we do have another phone caller. Welcome to Boat Talk. Well, thank you. Uh, this is Freddie. I had a question about if that many lobsters are going in and out of the traps. It seems like you'd only need one lobster trap. You put it out there. The question is how long does it take them to find it and get back in? If you've got a mess of lobsters, like fishing with a line, you'll be able to drop a trap in, stay in one spot all day, and pull lobsters out uh, <laughs> like you're fishing. Just as they come in, that, I guess that could be the uh, theory. Uh, on the other hand, if you're just going to get who's in there at the time, then you need a bazillion traps. Uh. Yeah, but if you're going to put the same trap in and out and stay in one spot all day, it seems, once you find a place where you got a bunch of lobsters gathered already because of your bait. Now, they're nocturnal as well, and that's one reason why fishermen are headed out of the harbor at, uh, you know, 4.30 a.m. and, uh, you know, waking up the good tourists and, and yachters on their boats often complain that the lobstermen are firing up, you know, way before <laughs> dawn and can't get a good rest and stuff. And in a way, that's because the lobsters are acting noc nocturnally. And by afternoon, a lot of the ones that are wandering in and out on your bait there, they're, they're long gone. They're hanging out at the local bar. Well, I'll keep an eye out for, uh, for hairy lobsters. Yeah, hairy <laughs> internal right. lobsters. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. The number around boat talk. Uh, we're almost halfway through it, and uh, yeah, we're being pretty gruesome so far. Who today. knows? <laughs> who knows what we're talking about so far? Hey, I got a little thing here. This is from uh, Lauren Bacall. Uh, she wrote a famous actress. She wrote a, a, a autobiography called "By Myself and Then Some." And, uh, of course, it's got some boat stuff in it, so I thought, because uh, it was kind of classic, we'd share this. Lauren Bacall uh, married uh, Humphrey Bogart when she was, like, uh, 19, 20 years old. They met uh, making a movie and fell in love. Bogie was married at the time. And, uh, you know, she was 19, didn't know anything about anything, to tell you the truth, uh, especially love, and just blew her away. And, and uh, she just wanted to be everything for Bogie, who was... Uh, 44 years old, uh, sort of pretty uh, easygoing, self-assured fella, and uh, he had a boat. He had uh, Santana, which was a 55-foot yawl, and that was Bogey's happy place. Okay, so uh, here's uh, Lauren Bacall headed off uh, to go boating with Bogey for the first time, and I just thought, in a lot of ways, this is just a classic account. Um, Bogey planned his big moment, showing me Catalina. I was filled with anticipation. I so wanted to adore it all. A beautiful summer weekend, and off we went. Food was bought. I was going to cook a great dinner. I asked May how to cook string beans. Twenty minutes in boiling water, I was told. I couldn't wait. I loved playing house. Alone, just the two of us at sea in the moonlight, surrounded by silence. So romantic. We left Newport. The trip would take about two hours. Bogey showed me how to steer the boat. I fixed lunch down below, which was fine for the first five minutes, and then... With the ocean swells and the motion of the boat, my stomach was visited with just a touch of queasiness. Please, God, don't let me be sick. I brought the lunch topside, and I was all right. On small cruisers, the stove is often in a corner of the main cabin near the door leading to the deck, so some air is always traveling through. I ate my first big mistake. Waves of nausea began to overtake me. I was tense, afraid Bogey would notice, and that made it worse. Finally, I just sat in the open air in the stern, Gas fumes floating by my nose. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm sorry. Uh, gas, I uh, sat. 
uh, in the open air in the stern, gas fumes floating past my nose, turning greener and greener, with bogey at the wheel showing me gl glorious Catalina. I couldn't be too enthusiastic, afraid to move or say much for fear of throwing up. So I sat with a sickly smile on my face till we got into the lee of the island and the ground swell stopped. Finally, the nausea passed. Poor bogey, he meant, this meant so much to him, and like all things that one builds too much, uh, too high in one's mind, it was a letdown. We moored in Cherry Cove, pretty well-protected, very calm. It had a small beach. Pat and Zelma brought their boat over. There were a couple of sailboats moored. I handled the boat hook by, while Bogey handled the boat. There was so much boating terminology to learn. That was the year I learned everything at once, how to be a wife, how to run a house, sail a boat, cook, not to trust Jack Warner. As soon as we moored, Bogey would have his first drink. That was the custom. So we sat in the sun with the boat very gently moving, Oh, how I wished it would stay still. And Bogey telling me that once I got used to it, once I had my sea legs, I'd feel terrific, and I hoped he was right. He was Navy trained. Hurricanes didn't bother him. I prepared the string beans. I put the water on to boil, and when it did, I turned the fire off, and 20 minutes later announced dinner. What a fiasco. That remained a joke for years. Bogey did finally face the fact of my squeamishness, but went on believing that I'd improve with practice. And once I was there, I always loved it. It was just getting there that I hated. <laughs> Bogey taught me to keep my eye on the horizon. If you did that, the nausea would pass. Stare at an immovable object. God knows I tried, and it did get better after a time. I only wanted to be with him anyway, and I was determined to enjoy everything he enjoyed. Mm. And in a way, like I say, that's a classic story in a couple ways, especially the part where that was Bogey's happy place. But I'm telling you what, the idea of going for a boat ride was not a happy prospect for Lauren Bacall. Oh, yeah. And she'd go because she kind of had to follow her man, but, boy, she didn't like it until the, the hook mm -hmm. was down. And if Mama's not happy on the boat, um, you know, that's an interesting thing. And the thing is, not everybody is happy on a boat. Some people will never be comfortable with the motion. Oh, my God. Yeah, there are some people, yes. My wife included. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just never. Even uh, when the boat is, uh, you know, where you've got in the Lee of Catalina there, moored and sitting still, yeah. still not good enough. And, and again, uh, trying to pretend you're not sick is sometimes a losing proposition. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of a self-psychological thing where you're trying to, well, if I ignore myself or no, I try to think of something else. And, uh, no I'm a works. big fan. I, I uh, firmly believe there's two kinds of sick out on the water, okay? There's uh, seasickness, which is the classic, you know, turn green, kind of no cure for that. You might get over it in a week or so, but, you know, it's yeah, you really don't want that to happen to you. <laughs> it's an inner ear disturbance where, you know, uh, your equilibrium is just totally blown and, and nothing good happens after that. Now, some people are prone to that. Um, on the other hand, I'm happy to say that I'm not, you know. But every once in a while, I'll get queasy for a few minutes, you know. And I will manfully try to hold that down. I don't want to be, anybody see me throwing up on a boat because I don't get sick, right? There's a, there's a pride thing going there. Okay, but what I learned is this. Uh, we come back from Bermuda one time, and we took uh, a friend of the owner and his 13-year-old uh, surfer dude son uh, that wanted to bond together, okay? And we left Bermuda coming back north here. It was a little rough, um, and especially the first night out and the second night out, too, and maybe after that, the uh, father and son were up all night out in the cockpit throwing up. And the autopilot didn't work either, so we had oh to hand boy. steer the boat the whole way. And normally, the autopilot would be driving. If they throw up behind the wheel, well, there's nobody there, so what? But if you're standing there and somebody's throwing up next to you all, it's, it just doesn't help, you know? <clears throat> so anyway, uh, I was joking with the kid, Dylan, uh, and... I would clean up after him. I had a bucket there, and, you know, I'd grab some water and sluice it away, and finally he threw up on me. Oh, man. And I told him, it was just, you know, bad time and a lurch, whatever, but, you know, he splashed me. And I said, okay, and turned overboard. around and, and hurled overboard myself. You know, and he says, ha, ha, now you're sick too. I said, no, I was kind of queasy there for a minute. Now I feel better, okay? I feel totally better having let that go. He's still sick. Yeah. Okay, there's two different maladies going on there. This is certainly really a vulgar show. Well, <laughs> they are, though. Uh, hey, this is important boating issues because if you want to go out there and, like I say, have a good time, but you can't, yeah. you can't be comfortable there. Um, you know, all the Dramamine, all the little uh, wristbands with Patches, the acupuncture yeah. buttons and all that stuff. Uh, you know, best of luck to you. Yeah. 
Uh, boy. Um, quick, help us. Good morning. You're on Boat Talk. Good morning. Good how morning. are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Ed, this, this has been a, a great uh, discussion about being sick, but I want to get back to... Uh, <laughs> to uh, if you're interested in such stuff. <laughs> um, well, I'm a parent, so we've dealt with that, you know. Um, the... Uh, I was uh, the, the the fellow that doesn't like the the, the bait being dumped on the shore, and that's that's a you know. Remember a few years ago down in um, I think it was around Pittsburgh, someone complained about the radios on the the lobster boats, and of course then uh, that antagonized the the lobstermen, and they all cranked up the radios. It almost seems like when folks come across the border that they ought to be given a a, a manual on on local etiquette that i mean these guys are trying to make a living and and of course if you if you they're gonna not everything that they do is going to be the way the folks that moved in here want it to be but we're all here in the same state and sometimes the lobstermen are you know doing things just to antagonize the folks that just moved in here and and uh, you know i don't know what to do about it but it's a it's a respect matter that you know, if the, if the folks that have moved here that are enjoying the beach understand that folks are making their living on the water, and the folks that are making their living on the water are understanding that uh, there are people moving here from way of sort of, you know, I, I live close to Booth Bay Harbor, and it's sort of a love-hate relationship. The folks that live in Booth Bay year-round hate the tourists, but they'd be sunk without them. Um, so it's just a matter of uh, we all got to understand that uh, everyone's going to use the same place in a different way. You have put your finger right on the button, and uh, maybe not surprisingly, the Chamber of Commerce down to uh, Jonesport, Beals Island, has uh, has been there first, and they have written up such a manual that they give to new people uh, moving into the community. Wow. Yeah, and... Uh, because that is really a very traditional uh, fishing community with really attractive uh, real estate <laughs> prices. And now the mix of people in the Jonesport-Beals area, you know, the uh, the rusticators have been moving, uh, you know, further down into Washington County on a pretty steady b- uh, basis. Sure. And uh, so, yeah, they have all, already come up with a – this was covered in the Working Waterfront uh, newspaper, the Island Institute's uh, newspaper that they send out. Yeah. Among other places. Well, I hear this complaint all the time. You know, the the boats are loud and they're out early, but I, you know, that's the way you got to do it. And and that's also, you know, I, it's nice to hear some folks come up here and, and that that they that's the charm they like about the area, and that's really the attitude to have. It seems to me. Well, imagine this: you're an urchin fisherman, okay? And uh, some of the urchin uh, fishermen, uh, you, you know, uh, I have buddies that used to. Uh, Fish in Thunder Hole, and I'd say, how far up in there do you go? He says, you know where the yellow line is on the highway? You know, yeah. we, that's how far up we, we, you know, if we can get up that far, we'll go up that far. Yeah. So anyway, some uh, sometimes the good urchins are right inshore, and uh, let's imagine you're out there on a nice calm morning, and, and it's uh, December, it's February, you know, and, and uh, it's beautiful calm. You're out there making a living, jumping into the ice water, and some lady who lives right there comes running out of her house, yelling at you to get out of her front yard. Oh, yeah. Okay? Now, I'm sorry, that's not going to make them go away. <laughs> um, matter of fact, that gets the radio turned up, and they're going to want to fish there on a regular basis now, you know. And that's a story that actually happened to a friend of mine. So Yeah. Well, I think you're not allowed to uh, interrupt uh, uh, communication anyway, so I think the fellows down at Pittsburgh, what they did was turn their radios down, but turn the... the oh, yeah, the, country music, the, uh, classic <laughs> rock, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyways, uh, I don't know what to do about it, but it, it, I think, you know, information and education is probably a good start. Broke Nam- Manuel Noriega, didn't it, that ACDC music? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that old lady's got no chance in her waterfront house there. All right. Um, thank you for that call. And we do have another one. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. You're talking about seasickness. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go again. Here we go again. That's too bad that some people are prone to that and others aren't. But uh, as far as I know, there's only one known cure for uh, seasickness, and that's to uh, sit under a tree. Sit <laughs> under a tree, yep, a nap in a parking lot. Yeah, that'll take it. Take care of it every time. Unfortunately, uh, usually when that subject comes up, you're often 100 miles away from a tree sort of thing, you know? Yeah, well, it'll still cure you. Yep. As <laughs> soon as you get there. Uh, I had another question to see if you guys knew anything about a piece of rope that I saw the other day. 
a uh, fellow stopped by my shop. Was it hemp? Uh, no, <laughs> no. It was nylon. It was 250 feet with a shackle on the end like it was an anchor road. And the fellow was uh, disappointed with it because it was so, so stiff. You could barely uh-huh. get it to come out of a coil. Or you could put it in a coil and it would just stay there. Huh? And under sure? further investigation, we discovered that there was a piece of copper electrical wire going through each of the three strands Wow! of the rope. And I'm wondering if you got any idea. No, I don't think that rope was made for a special purpose. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Whether they were trying to use it as a ground, uh, somehow maybe attaching huh. it to the anchor, or but somebody made an absolutely gorgeous piece of line um, over three strands of copper wire, a, a black, a white, and a red. Wow. Now that copper is going to corrode in there and you yeah. know, turn green and kind of waste away over time. So, um, so the copper wire was covered all the way from the end, the yeah. both ends. Yep. So it was three separate strands of wire huh. that they made the three strands that they were then going to make the rope out of. And yeah. a very heavy piece of rope. It was. Yeah. Yeah. No idea. Yeah. Uh, I would think there's, a, again, a, some specific kind of use for that kind of rope. That sounds like a real mystery for... The answer will be in next next month's show. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and there's probably more than 250 feet that was made of it. No wow. doubt. Nope, never heard anything like that's that. Good. That's a lot of work to do that. Interesting. I'm sure there's some use for it, though. Uh, you right. know, there uh, you cannot can't have enough rope. Well, if it's nylon, it can't be that old. I mean, nylon ropes have been around what, man, 40, 50 years at most. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Well, we'll keep searching. All right. Call up a uh, rope manufacturer. Yeah. Uh, Crow you know, Rope. Crow Rope, uh, they still in business? I think they went out of business, didn't they? Yeah, they're, they're gone. But Anyway, uh, yeah, call up a rope manufacturer rope or, or even the uh, people at Hamilton Marine, for instance. They might even find that interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, Chandlery. If you get an answer, call us back. Yeah, be very, very curious. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, the end of the uh, Lauren Bacall uh, Bogart story. Um, um, again, uh, she was pretty young when she married Bogart. He got uh, cancer pretty quick after that. And, uh, you know, the last thing that Bogie did to ever go out was down to the boat. He couldn't take the boat out at the time, but just to get on it was mm-hmm. a huge, huge <clears throat> morale boost for him at the time. And it was being taken care of. And uh, he left it, uh, you know, in his will, uh, very specific, that I uh, uh, believed that it was going to be broken up if, if it wasn't uh, passed on to just the right person. He didn't want that boat going to somebody that wasn't going to take care of it and use it, you know. Mm-hmm. And again, it was a 55-foot yawl. So Bogey gets cancer, and uh, they do some biopsies, 1956, 1957, little crude at the time, you know. And uh, so they figure out that they got to cut him up, and they go in, and they take out a big part of his, they take out his esophagus, big part of his trachea, big hunks of lungs, and he switches to filter cigarettes for the first time. <laughs> Jeez. He uh, yeah. lived about another six months. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yep, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. There's been death and vomit, and uh, we you know are, <laughs> we really are bringing the crude into crude boat charters here. Well, perhaps you hit on a theme there without even knowing it to start so. off with, and uh, you know, without so. even knowing it, we've been we've been good for it. And the phones <laughs> ring it again. You give us a call this morning. About another fifteen minutes in boat talk. Again, the number one eight six six. Six two five nine three seven eight. Good morning. You're on boat talk. Uh, that was glider airplane glider tow rope. Hey, there you go. That's exactly what it was. They wow. Used it. Okay, let me go. Why? Why did they have the the wire? They could communicate for... between towing plane and glider. So it has a, okay. It must have had an electrical terminal on it too that broke away every time. Uh. Well, well I don't know. The, uh, the, not a glider pilot. Yeah, the tow thing plugs in somehow to you know one end of the plane, I yeah, guess. So and when you when you pull that lever. Yeah, yeah. and of course there are uh, gliders over to the Bar Harbor Airport going up and down all the time, and uh, yeah, very interesting. Well, yeah, my yeah. my grandfather had some on his boat back in the fifties or sixties. <laughs> and it, uh, the copper wire in there is not meant to get wet. Obviously, not not an immersion well, basis. It was, yeah. it was insulated. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's the rope's not meant to be immersed in the water full time. So, yeah. you know, I I think that it's when used in that way, it's really sacrificial. So it doesn't make any difference. Interesting. Hmm. Well, thank you for well, clearing that, that up. Thanks for calling. Right. And we have another call already. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. 
Hi, I, I'm the first caller this, this morning. That I, I'm just calling briefly again because I wanted to ah. remark on something that somebody said uh, uh, just recently. I, I, I just uh, got near the radio when I heard, or heard this, so I didn't hear the whole thing. But what I heard was uh, a suggestion of lobstermen, fishermen, being people who have been here a long time, and that the people who may be complaining against them who want to use the beach are perhaps uh, people from away, and that perhaps uh, these fishermen have a proprietary position in the area. I feel that I object to that, first of all, because I, I, my, <coughs> excuse me, my uh, family has been in this area. I have lived here in Maine <coughs> for uh, all my life. The family has had a place on the shore here for uh, nearly 40 years. I have neighbors who have uh, been on the shore here who are not fishermen who have been here for a lot longer than that. So I just don't want the implication to be established out there in people's minds that this is uh, this is what we're talking about. I see your point exactly, and, uh, you know, uh, well said. Um, I believe what they're referring to is uh, this is... Uh, uh, booklet that they've come up with in the Jonesport Beals area has been uh, people have been accessing it through real estate agents mostly and uh, uh, most of the people I guess that they've been passing it out to again are, are uh, you know have no experience of living in Maine uh, total uh, you know from away kind of situation and there is a cultural divide and I uh, uh, you know there's a cultural difference and uh, I guess there's a continuum of that from you know uh, um, People that have lived here their whole lives but don't know anything about fishing to people who uh, don't fish but understand it. And people, you know, um, I'm thinking there's a big continuum there. But, again, no, not pointed at all about, I don't think, what you were talking about earlier at all. You have a you have a very legitimate problem there. Right. Okay. No, no doubt about it. Okay, but I've heard, that, I've heard this, uh, this before, too. I've heard the implication before elsewhere. So uh, it, I think it's something that people do get in their minds. Uh, yeah, and uh, of course, uh, you know, if you look at the Fisherman's Voice newspaper or the Working Waterfront newspaper, uh, or even uh, the Bangor Daily News, just the other day, it was it's about uh, access to the coast. I mean, uh, um, it's dwindling for for fishery uh, oriented things, that's for sure. And uh, you know, the tide that's coming this way has uh, more resources and and no, uh, you know, no no. Uh, no basis of, uh, like say, no understanding of, of the culture, the, uh, the tradition, the fishery. The, uh, um, if you look at the Fisherman's Voice newspaper, Bill Crow, the editor there, his uh, editorials are a lot about a way of life, you know. Um, people who are just trying to make a living need access to the resource so they can uh, continue their way of life and, and make their little living, you know. But just like anybody else, they can't pollute. And no, and in a lot of ways, supplies. a lot of times, they're their own worst enemies. Um, you know, the typical thing would be clamors that uh, come down through your yard and leave trash there. <coughs> you know, let alone, uh, you know, who knows what else uh, might be going on uh, down there. Um, here's a, uh, um, a place I was uh, just working yesterday. Now, uh, we're down in Lemoyne on the backside, way up in the uh, Skillins River, the backside of Lemoyne, sort of up behind in L.A. Gray if you can imagine that, off of Route 1 there. And, uh, you know, at low tide, there's quite a bit of mud uh, looking out there. Now, there's a private road there, and people do not like the fishermen, the uh, uh, worm diggers or clammers coming down there. They're, they're all over it. They don't let them down there. So they come in other ways. They come by canoe. They come by aluminum boat. Mm -hmm. And uh, they go out there on those mud banks. And sometimes, um, you know, the uh, uh, muscle draggers are out there, too. You look at that little piece of mud and you think, how, what a garden. How many people are making a little living off that piece of mud? You know, the wormers, the uh, clammers. And, and again, coming to work by canoe is not a, uh, that's, that's not a, a real good plan, tell you the truth, to uh, fill up a canoe on, on a uh, bank there with buckets and buckets of uh, drywall, drywall buckets all filled with clams or worms or whatever, and then try to launch the thing and get back to where you're going. Uh, a canoe is not the right vessel for that. Those fellows have very little invested in their fishery, basically. A pair of boots and a hoe, you can get into the 
the clam and or worm fishery. It's not like you have to buy a vessel or anything. And again, they're trying to access that any way they can, and it, it's hard for them. And I'd be the first one to point out, in some ways, they're their own worst enemies. I'm, I'm all for uh, uh, public access uh, to the to the shore, for sure. Again, I'm just fascinated by uh, the money coming out of that mud bank there, um, you know, out in front of, you know, people who, uh, you know, they make their money a completely different way. So, um, and everybody, again, has experienced it in a, in a slightly different way, and, and there's a lot of different things going on there, conflicting uses that, uh, you know, hopefully all wash out. But that's the difficult trick, ain't it? Yeah. Okay, well, uh, thank you. I'm, Best of luck for you. We'd like to hear from you in the future and, and uh, know more about what happens. You know, the summertime's coming up. The bait season's right. just about to start, really. Okay. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Good luck. We're coming up on uh, 10 before uh, On the Wing with Jim Bahoosh. Jim, I hear, has uh, live music today. Tree by Leaf is coming in uh, oh, live really? at noontime. Huh. So you might want to stay tuned for that. We uh, have another thing to talk about on Boat Talk this morning, and we sort of uh, we're going to leave it to see if somebody would call up and ask about raw faith. And, uh, yes, uh, I was expecting a call. Yeah, nobody has so far, so uh, you know that's a perennial issue around uh, Boat Talk here. And I did talk to George McKay uh, yesterday on the phone, and uh, raw faith, of course, is a self-described, uh, self-built galleon, which is right now down in Rockland Harbor. And uh, they just went through a nice little blow the other day on the weekend. It was about the uh, worst weather they've had yeah, yeah. since they've been in Rockland. And uh, they were not on their mooring. They're, they are off their mooring and uh, now anchored. They can't afford the mooring. <laughs> so what they did was they moved over to an anchoring area. They don't have an engine. Uh, they're not sailing at the present time. So they kedged their way over there, which means that you, you uh, oh, put an anchor in a boat and you row it out as far as you can, drop it in the water, and then you pull the boat up to the anchor and then uh, do it again, and it took them about two and a half hours to go a half a mile. That's, you're kedged out. That's a really hard job, rowing a little tiny boat with a great big heavy anchor yeah, and chain. Yeah, took them uh, two and a half hours to That's... go a half a mile, and now they're anchored uh, over in Rockland Harbor. And uh, talking with George, they had a fairly hard winter. You know, you got to get drinking water and firewood out to, uh, you know, just imagine getting it in, into your house, let alone out to your boat in Rockland Harbor, let alone from the little boat up to the big boat. I mean... You know, it was a bit of a winter, and uh, Robert, his son, and uh, George spent the winter on the boat, basically. And uh, But having done a lot of work on the boat, and they still need to fix the rudder and re-rig the mass, which were damaged in their attempt to go south at Thanksgiving last year. George doesn't think that's a big problem, and his plan is to uh, put it back the way it was, using his existing sails, of course, just a lot stronger than it used to be. And... Uh, the way I put it to George, the way I look at it, he's got three problems. He's got a boat problem. He's got to fix that boat up strong enough so, you know, it will survive anything that happens to it because it broke before. It wasn't strong enough. He has an experience problem. He needs, he's not a sailor, and he needs to learn how to handle, how to sail, and specifically how to handle that boat, which is not the greatest boat to learn on. It's not, <laughs> um, you know, it's an old-fashioned boat. It will sail. You could go around the world in raw faith if you wanted to. But it's not as handy as your modern uh, fiberglass sloop or, or Hobie Cat or something like that. It won't point as high into the wind as a modern boat, and uh, it's not fast. And it, you know, So it's a bit of a cumbersome thing to learn to sail. He needs to spend time and learn to uh, be able to handle that boat in any, any circumstances and conditions. Mm. And uh, in a way, he will solve what is his third problem, which is a people problem, I think, by demonstrating... Just some, ba you know, as I say, you can't argue with competency. If you can demonstrate that you can handle that boat in any conditions and circumstances, well, nobody can argue with that. It's going to take some time to learn. Yeah. The third thing uh, is problem is people problem. Uh, you know, the uh, um, local schooner community down to Rockland and George sort of butted heads and, uh, you know, uh, sort of disagree on on uh, basic philosophy down there and, uh, you know, not getting along. So, uh, George probably be out of Rockland Harbor after he gets the uh, the uh, boat turned around there. Little on the poor side right now. And uh, again, uh, you know, nothing's really happened to improve the situation since last winter, um, but it's time to get back to work. And uh, again, as I told George, um, you've uh, got a people problem there. And in my experience, 
a people problem uh, is never without two sides, and the only side you got leverage on is your own. Mm-hmm. When you get right down to it, um, you can go blue in the face, but if you, uh, you know, like say you are the only person that you can uh, you can influence the behavior of, you've got the most leverage on. And I, I shared a quote with George yesterday that uh, came from Benjamin Franklin to John Paul Jones. Now, John Paul Jones, there's a new biography of John Paul Jones by Evan Wright, I believe, of Newsweek magazine. It's quite readable. It's uh, pretty good. And uh, John Paul Jones was a genius. He loved to fight. And when he'd get in a fight, he'd become ecstatic. He'd just become gleeful and, and, uh, you know, maniacal and and, uh, completely energized. It was where he loved to be, you know. He wanted glory. He craved respect. He was a very prideful man. And he was something of a genius at fighting, too. On the other hand, he was kind of a difficult character, and every boat that John Paul Jones was ever on either had a mutiny or somebody wanted to mutiny, and he actually killed a fella earlier in his uh, merchant career who was going to mutiny. So anyway, John Paul Jones, uh, again, never did well in the American Navy when he wasn't fighting because he was such a hard fella to get along with. And this is what Benjamin Franklin said to John Paul Jones, and I shared this with George, and he kind of saw exactly what I was getting at. Hereafter, if you should observe on occasion to give your officers and friends a little more praise than is their due, and confess more fault than you can justly be charged with, you will only become, the sooner for it, a great captain. Criticizing and censuring almost everyone you have to do with will diminish friends, increase enemies, and thereby hurt your affairs. Benjamin Franklin to John Paul Jones, 1780. (laughs) And as I said to George, you kind of got to go backwards, kind of doing a humble limbo thing, and kind of say, well, I don't know nothing, but I'm, I'm glad for your advice and expertise, and, and I appreciate your, all your help, you know, and, yeah. and you've got to suck it up sometimes. And he tries to do that. Um, he'd be the first one to say that, but it's a hard trick, and he'd be the first one to agree to that, too. We're coming up on the end of the show, and we do have one more caller to get to, so let's quickly do that. Good morning, and welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning, guys. Hi, ah, Michael. I'd like to propose a, uh, a topic for a future show or next show. And uh, I, there's, a, there's a current new fad, I think, that, um, which is the spirit of tradition boats. And um, I guess I would argue as a way to get the debate going that traditional boats are better than spirit of tradition boats any day. And uh, I think the big ones work okay. This is the basic of my, my argument. The big ones work okay. The, the W76s that Joel drew, I think, are big enough to look correct. Their freeboard is reasonably proportional to their length and their overhangs, and they are big enough and long enough to have good lateral plane and to provide a good steering and sailing platform. I, I think that um, the new boats, uh, such as the one that Morris Yachts has just sort of, they did an update of an S&S, a little S&S sloop that was featured in Boats and Harbors, main boats and harbors. It's going to be on television this Saturday also on Bill Green's Outboard. The uh, Morris, Morris 36, it, frightfully yeah. popular. Well, I would argue that uh, the little S&S boat, I've forgotten its name now, but uh, Art did quite an eloquent little write-up of it in Boats and Harbors a couple of months before they wrote about it. I would argue that it's a better boat. And um, the, when, you, when you shrink these boats down... The spirit of tradition boats to that size, to 30-some-odd feet, to begin with, they don't look right. When you have the, the disparity between the length on deck and the length on the waterline, which old traditional long keel boats had, and you try to adopt, adapt it to a shoal draft boat, you end up with way too much freeboard. And all those boats look like they need another 3,000 pounds of ballast in them. They look like they're unballasted because they need to put the headroom for the boat for, for a modern client inside the freeboard and it just looks wrong and i would also propose that on any kind of a voyage not not a race around the buoys or a day sail but any kind of a voyage that the long keel boat is easier to sail more forgiving has a better motion steers itself tracks better and is altogether a better behaved better sailing better handling and more satisfactory boat to own couldn't agree more them fin keel things with the rudders hanging down uh separately this scare the heck yeah. out of me tell you the truth i like a big full keel and i also like a mizzen mast to tie myself to sometimes not that i'm you know not that i'm strange that way but <laughs> okay well, sometimes you need to tie yourself yeah, to the mast we'll so, We'll Certainly come up in the past. Put that off till next month. <laughs> We're right up the end boat talk. Um, thanks, Joel Mann, for uh, engineering down in the engine room today. 
We're uh, about ready for Jim Pahoosh and On the Wing coming up next on WRU-FM Blue Hill 89.9 and 102.9 in Bangor. And, uh, yeah, live, Tree by Leaf at noontime. You want to stay tuned for that. There's uh, one more article here we didn't get to. is Mand and Holland building a real Viking ship out of popsicle sticks. <laughs> Five million of them so far, and he wants to take it to sea. So perhaps we'll be seeing him later on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Second Tuesday of the month, Boat Talk will be back again. Thanks for listening and helping. Bye. If I had a boat, I'd go out on the ocean. Boat Talk is made possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and